you know, the things that I've noticed, the biggest challenges people have are staying the course when it comes to creativity, when it comes to cultivating a spiritual practice. It's hard to stay focused. And especially in this day and age, we've got like a million things coming at us. So it just takes that, you know, just keep it simple, right? Just come back to a word after word after word is power. You know, just this breath, just this moment, you and I talking, uttering, vocalizing. There's nothing else happening. It all begins by understanding the mind. I want to be happy now. I don't care about the future. I want to be happy right now. You are not alone. You are never, ever, ever alone in this. It's helped my voice grow and given me freedom to be creative on my own. I'm Christina Barcy. Welcome to Be Bold Begin, a podcast dedicated to you, the creative, the healer, and the innovator. The topics and conversations we have here are designed to help you discover what might be getting in your way and offer you tools, techniques, and guidance to move through them. I live in the imposter's body more than I live in my own body. I don't have to feel like I don't deserve this. This is where creativity and healing intersect. If you decide to be bold and begin, you have the opportunity to feel humbled and empowered. I totally believe that. I'm a certified Kaizen Muse creativity coach, a certified Reiki energy healer, and an entrepreneur, artist, and presenter. I will share with you my experiences, my proven tools and techniques that helped me and my clients and loved ones shift and expand in the areas they most desired. This is a gentle and open space where you will hear how others are being bold to encourage you to begin your own journey or expand the one you're on. This is Beeble Begin. Hi there, people begin listeners. Before I get to the episode today, I do want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe versus Wade. If you're unfamiliar with what this is, that decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion, restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion threatens the health and independence of all Americans. And this decision could also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, you can go to podvoices.help. I do encourage you to take care, to speak up, and to spread the word. Hi, welcome back. This is Barcy, your host. And if you just listened to the intro of this podcast, then you may have heard me say that this is where creativity and healing connect. And that connection can take many forms. Creativity can take many forms as well, especially once we accept that we are all creative because creativity is actually a human quality and we all have it. Every time you have a new thought or solve a problem, you're being a little creative. But another power our creativity holds is the magic to help us heal. Often when we engage in a creative practice, we must work with ourselves in ways that bring things to the surface, like the process of writing, for example. And when we connect with ourselves in this way, I personally do believe that there is also something spiritual happening within us. So my guest today, Albert Flynn de Silver, says we are all creative geniuses and inherently creative and wise. Being creative is as essential as air and water. 
Albert is an award-winning internationally published writer, speaker, and workshop leader known for merging the art of creative writing and the evolutionary practice of mindfulness meditation. After receiving a BFA from the University of Colorado and an MFA from the San Francisco Art Institute, Albert served as Marin County, California's very first Poet Laureate from 2008 to 2010. So welcome, Albert. Thank you so much. It's totally delighted to be here. I'm so glad to have you. So my first thought is, I don't know that much about what a Poet Laureate does. Can you share with us just what holding that title means to you? And then also what happens in that interim from 2008 to 2010? Yeah, so the Poet Laureate is really just an advocate for poetry in the community. And I have been teaching as a California poet in the schools in my community and around the Bay Area for many years. And then they started the Poet Laureate ship in our county. So basically, you know, I got to choose what I wanted to do as Poet Laureate and being kind of an ambassador for poetry. And what I wanted to do was to kind of get out into the community in a different way, you know, because I had been in classrooms and kind of teaching environments and colleges and community centers and so forth. So I decided to collaborate with my best friend, who's a sculptor and photographer, a guy named Todd Pickering. And I asked him if he could build me a giant chair made out of poetry books. And he said, sure, I could probably do that. So I ran around my favorite bookstores in the Bay Area and, you know, used bookstores and kind of libraries and people giving away books. And he built this chair made out of poetry books. And then we kind of wheeled it around various places. We went to the beach and we went to gas stations and we went to the county fair and we would just kind of show up with the chair and it had like a little box in the back and with some paper and some pens and people were just kind of curious and then they would sit down and they would reflect about poetry and some of them would write little poems and put them in the little box in the back. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. That's so creative. Yeah. <laughs> It was fun. It was a total blast. What made you think of a chair of things to create? You know, I sort of thought, oh, that'd be funny to kind of take it literally. Like, that's what they call, oh. you know, when you're a professor, you're given the blah, blah, blah person emeritus chair of poetry at right. such and such university. So <laughs> I thought of a literal chair. And of course, we're often sitting in chairs reading. And so, yeah. And we sort of made it mobile. It was actually, the frame was steel, so it was pretty heavy. So we had to configure it a way to like have these temporary wheels that we could hook on so we could wheel it around. Oh my goodness. Imagining something very big. Was it something? It was pretty big. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like a large sized armchair. Amazing. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. So those are the fun things you get to do as a poet laureate. That's so cool. Exactly. Yeah. I love the freedom to that. I've always wondered, so I feel very honored that I get to actually ask someone who was a Poet Laureate. Last question about being that, being a Poet Laureate. How do you achieve that title? How do you get the honor of doing that? Well, I think it's just called participation. Okay. (laughs) You know, it's just engaging (laughs) consistently in community and participating in the crowd. You know, this is one of the things I love to teach my students about about the artistic journey and the writing journey in particular, that's mostly what I'm teaching these days, that we have to participate. You know, we can't really like hang out all alone and be the lone wolf scribbling away in our little log cabin retreat. That's an old paradigm. And so participating in community is really the way that we can propel our creativity and in this case, writing forward. So I participated a lot. You know, I just became obsessed with poetry after I finished grad school. I actually studied visual arts. And then 
just kind of was going to readings and going to the library and connecting with other poets. And next thing I know, I heard about this California Poets in the Schools program. And I was like, that sounds cool. And eventually I started training with them and learning how to teach and wound up teaching in the program for about almost 12 years. And I had gotten a couple of grants through my county program. You know, I was doing a lot of readings and just out and about in the community. And I think that's how one becomes Poet Laureate. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Sure. I feel like it's one of those things that feel mysterious, but like such an honor to have a title like that. And I really enjoy your emphasis on participation because it is, well, at least when I'm working with people that are maybe a little new to the creative process or starting something new, even if you're not new to being creative, just something mm -hmm different that you're doing it can be scary and putting yourself out there in an involved way can feel extra scary so totally yeah totally. so i like that you spend time with that part of the process too of how to be engaged and engage others yeah i mean it's just fun like so many people particularly in our culture don't feel like they have a connection to poetry or they don't get poetry or it's this elitist thing or it's this academic thing or intellectual thing so one of my goals has always been to really make it more accessible and to bring it down to earth and realize that one can appreciate poetry on a lot of different levels not just like intellectual understanding but that you can just appreciate the weird sounds of the words for example it doesn't have to make a logical sense yes no. neruda is great for that at times <laughs> I'll share a short story about my poetry experience being strange, yeah. where I did speech forensics in college, and I was the overcreate Speech forensics? It's called forensics because the definition of forensics is to seek knowledge. And okay. that's what you're doing as you are forming presentational speeches, ultimately, mm -hmm. and you're sharing information. You're seeking knowledge to share knowledge, ultimately. Yeah. So the oh, forensics okay. team, that's what the speech and debate team is called. And they have creative categories outside of what you think of when you think of speeches. And I did all of those categories, of course. And so one of them was poetry. And I did a Neruda piece mixed in with other pieces, but it was the alphabet. And it was just having fun with the sounds of words mm -hmm. and creating shapes with my body. And it was super <laughs> like interpretive dance for speech, ultimately. Uh -huh. I kind of like that. It was so much fun. I loved it so much. Yeah, because yeah, it yeah. was so silly and fun and also i loved poetry too that was probably one of the first things i started writing as a young person but this really brings me back to why you decided to create a chair because there's something very pragmatic but also silly and approachable about that project so now yeah. i can really see why you chose to do that to help people connect with poetry that's really yeah. cool <laughs> well i'm so glad you mentioned silliness and fun because we sort of forget like you know, people make associations to writing as it's like serious, intense. It's like, you know, we associate it with school and so forth. And it's like, no, no. I mean, once you get into the poetry realm and the creativity realm, it should be silly and fun. And it doesn't have to be like this heavy, big, dark stuff. I mean, it can be that too. Right, <laughs> but right. Don't forget the silliness and fun. I know, right? I feel like creativity at its core should have that fun and joy in there or else it can get a little too dark, like you said. Like, it can just get dark sometimes and that's okay too, like okay. you said. But definitely sprinkling in some silliness can really help us balance that and not get like sucked into the corner of the darkness. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yeah. So I do want to shift a little and talk and get to know you more, basically. I'd love to know more about 
how you grew up, your background, and your journey in finding the meaning to creativity and using it in the ways that you do now. Do you mind talking a little bit about that? Well, I wrote a whole memoir about this, <laughs> this creative journey oh, wow. that people can read. Beamish Boy is the name of the book. But basically, I grew up in a alcoholic and abusive family situation, like many people. Or well, hopefully not too many people, but unfortunately, it seems like a human thing. But anyways, yeah, and so I really had no sense of a creative self. I didn't have any self-esteem. I didn't think I really had any creative capacities. And because I was surrounded by addiction and alcohol abuse and physical abuse, there was a lot of just kind of terror and fear associated. And yet I grew up in a household in which my parents were very much consumers of the arts. I mean, my father was an architect and we had just thousands of books in the house. And I grew up outside of New York City and we used to go into the city and we would go to theater and dance performances and the symphony. And mm. so I was around it a lot, but it took a while for it to sink in because of the different associations of just kind of the terror of growing up and the abuse and addiction stuff around that. So I came to creativity kind of out of just sheer, like, I don't know what else to do with my life. <laughs> I kind of, by high school, I was a terrible student. The only thing that I had sort of a remote sensibility for was taking pictures on the yearbook. And then when I got to college, you know, they always ask you, well, what do you want to do? Like, what's your major going to be? And I'm like, well, I don't know. Can I major in taking pictures? <laughs> and they're like, yes, that's a thing. So I was like, sign me up for that. So I ended up studying photography as an undergrad. I was okay at it. I got pretty excited about it in between binge drinking. But then I came to poetry later, actually, after studying photography in both undergrad and grad school. And I don't know if we have time for a quick little story about that. Yes. You're nodding. So, <laughs> yes. So I was not having a great go of my graduate program in photography at the Art Institute. So I went to the San Francisco Art Institute and uh, was kind of flailing around. I was lost. I actually failed my year-end review, which mm. I don't know how you do that. Like, how do you fail at art, right? But I managed to do that. There was a night, I think it was my second year. Fortunately, I had a mentor and teacher, Bill Berkson, who he was our one art history teacher that we had. Everyone had to take Bill's class in order to graduate. He was also a poet and an art writer. So he wrote for Art in America and Art News and all these amazing publications. And one night he's like, hey, there's this poetry reading down at the Cal Theater. You should come check it out. And I was like, poetry? That's not really my thing. But I didn't have anything going on. So I was like, all right, I'll just go see what Bill's up to. And it turns out it was a launch reading for the Norton Anthology of Postmodern American Poetry. It was like this big deal. And people, oh. you know, big poets were Alice Notley flew in from Paris and Lynn wow. Eugenium was there from across the bay and Ron Padgett and Diane DePrima and all these amazing poets who I didn't know at the time. So it was this extravaganza. I'll never forget this editor was reading an excerpt from the foreword, and he read this quote from Jack Spicer, who's one of these Bay Area Berkeley Renaissance poets from the 1950s. And this quote just totally blew my mind. He said, unbind the dreamers, poet be like God. <laughs> and I was like, what? You know, I was just totally like, Whew. you know, one of those kind of wind gust experiences of spirit yeah. and I didn't really know what God it was or what that really meant at the time but I just this unbind the dreamer and I was like I'm a dreamer <laughs> there's something that was resonating in terms yeah. of language that was being like 
I don't know, it was transmuted somehow. And I was just like, that's it. Like, I want to write. I want to do stuff. Like, I want to have this experience with language that is transformative. So that was, I kind of assigned that as the date that I became a writer and a poet. Amazing. I love that there was a specific moment for you, like a real moment that you remember and that can even be summated into a phrase of words that you heard and also remember. I'm terrible at that. <laughs> so I'm always amazed when people can do that. But what you're speaking to is having an epiphany. You had this moment of like right. getting smacked. It's like automatic transformation. But really, I do think that it's a summation of a lot of things we already have going on inside us. Yeah, yeah. And then that moment kind of bubbles and there's this like click that happens when something like that hits us in the face. I had a similar experience with philosophy and Nietzsche. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Also, a reference to God. It was a dancing God. And I don't know if you know that quote, which I will mess it up because I'm not as good as you and I cannot remember these things. <laughs> but it's a similar effect of let's be like the devil and defy gravity and be a dancing God, ultimately. I'm submitting. Uh-huh. That's awesome. I love that. But it reminds me of what you shared. It's so interesting. And it kind of woke me up too in that moment. And something connected for me. So that's really cool that you had that. A question about Bill. He Mm -hmm. was a mentor of yours? Yeah, I would call him that. I don't know if he would receive that, but... Right. (laughs) He's definitely transformative. You know, before he died, I was just... I always speak about him in that way, because that night pretty much changed my life. And then he became very sweet in terms of connecting me to other writers. And, you know, he used to Xerox copies of these old out-of-print poetry books that his friends had written. And he would leave them in my box at the Art Institute. And I got to publish a couple of his books later. Oh, wow. That's so cool. cool. Yeah. Do you think that Bill knew what he was doing that night when he invited you? I don't know. It seems so offhanded and casual. You know, but it was certainly, you know, more pointed and instructive. And I mean, he pretty much told me about this group of older poets that would meet in Bolinas on a regular Mm -hmm. basis. And he said, yeah, you should go out and say hi. You should go and introduce yourself. And I was like, I don't know. I was sort of 27, 6 at the time. And Joanne Kiger was living out there and Stephen Ratcliffe and some Mm -hmm. other poets. And I made my way out there to a reading at one of their houses and I just felt so like, you know, young and naive and here were these like gods and goddesses of poetry, you know. I would just watch them and listen to them and they would kind of get drunk and stoned and and read poems and talk shit and I was just kind of in awe but he sent me there and I ended up Mm -hmm. going for a couple of years to these houses and Bellinas is kind of you know it's this cryptic little art town in north of San Francisco and a lot of lot of poets have lived there over the years famous poets have come through Robert Creeley and Allen Ginsberg and Philip Whalen and lots of beat generation poets and Ann Waldman and so it's kind of got this wild artistic, creative poetry energy to it. I didn't know about Bellinas. That's so interesting. I'm going to have to look that up later. But yeah, it seems like you were really, from outside in hearing the story, it feels like he was immersing you around artists that were ultimately making it, right? Quote unquote, Mm -hmm. however we like to identify that, but people that were doing their work in a consistent way and engaging, like you mentioned earlier about being involved. And it seems like Bill may have kind of seen something in you that would absorb that 
Yes. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. And eventually he was like, well, stop hanging out with the older, old farts. Like <laughs> there's a whole bunch of 20 somethings that are doing really interesting, cool new work. That's how I ended up meeting some younger poets, in particular, Eddie and Anselm Berrigan, who are just these amazing, wonderful poets that come from a lineage. Their dad was a very well-known poet, Ted Berrigan, from New York in the 60s and 70s. And their mom, Alice Notley, lives in Paris. And she's one of my all-time favorite poets. And she's a kind of mentor, too. So I got to meet these guys in their whole sort of coterie and a whole scene down around the new school in San Francisco in the 90s. And wow. it was a cool time. That's really special that you got to take part in that almost like a piece of history. I do kind of want to get back to your story, though, because you shared something with me that was another sort of marking moment. And I think it was around age 22, I think you Mm -hmm. shared, that also kind of contributed to a big shift in your life, the way I understood it. Can you share with us a little more about that time? And Yes, I think you're referring to the time I woke up handcuffed to a hospital bed with no idea how I got there and under arrest. Yeah. So this was the culmination of many years of drinking way too much, getting into a lot of trouble. And this was the second hospitalization. It was a very close call. So I was very lucky to be alive. And I realized that I was not going to get a second chance or a third. Sorry, scratch that. Make that a third chance. I was not going to get a third chance. So that was a really dramatic wake up call. And I haven't drank since. It's very young to have that wake-up call and to stick with it. Yeah. It was one of those things like it wasn't difficult to quit drinking, but it was difficult to face the reasons why I drank. Mm. That's a whole other story for, for another podcast. <laughs> okay. Got it. Yeah. Yeah. That's part of the journey. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I'm sure it's not the part you like to talk about the most, but I think it's important because it informs Absolutely. a lot of what you did after that. Would you call that a rock bottom moment? Definitely. Yeah. Probably the rock bottom. Yeah. So I basically crawled my way out of there. And that began a 10-year journey of sort of waking up creatively and spiritually and emotionally and psychologically. Those are all the things. (laughs) (laughs) They are all the things. That's right. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about kind of the process of how those specific things, I mean, not everyone would necessarily find that through creativity, for example, but connecting all of that and psychologically and there's a lot it sounds that you, a journey you went on for about 10 years can you talk a little bit about how you found those things so after that, i moved to california after that and then i went to the art institute and i was sort of flailing around still lost and eventually i just had to face you know these reasons why i drank you know my new friend at the art institute was in something called therapy which was a total revelation to me. And he seemed to be pretty well adjusted. And so I ended up joining his therapy group. It turned out he was in a therapy group. But it also turned out that it was more of a psychedelic therapy cult. And so there was a lot of medicines happening, so-called medicines. Sorry to stop you, but can you tell us how would you define it as a cult versus just a group getting together and doing those things? Yeah, well, so the leaders, they're actually both therapists. And so I thought I was getting into therapy and doing talk therapy. But then they're like, oh, you know, we do these things on weekends and no pressure, but it'll totally blow your mind. It's amazing. And we use medicines and we use MDMA and all this. So, you know, now, thanks to Michael Pollan and many others, this is all very mainstream in some ways. As a healing 
modality. Now the problem was that this, and the reason that I refer to it as a cult was because it wasn't held properly. You know, it wasn't held with good boundaries. It was kind of like this wild west mentality of like, here, eat a bunch of mushrooms and like see what happens. And I mean, they held it in a fairly structured way, but ultimately the boundaries were too loosey-goosey. And there was sexual improprieties. There was just communication, power dynamics, and it was messy. And I couldn't really see like the larger context until finally like there was a major meltdown and I had to leave. But boy, did that wake me up (laughs) and give me a whole new sense of like, I had the experience of dying, you know, psychically through ingestion of various plants and, and then coming back and just having this realization of like, oh my God, there's something else here. There's more to me than I think. There's more creativity in me. There's more love in me. There's more capacity in me than I ever thought possible. So it was both a beautiful thing and a terrifying thing and one I needed to get distance from. Interesting. Because it sounds like you're able to separate it to some degree and own part of the experience and what it gave you. It almost sounds like you woke up to yourself in some ways. Yeah, in a big way, because there was a lot of betrayal, you know, like there was so much projection, like I wanted these therapists to be my caretakers and my parents and, you know, (laughs) my parents themselves had already betrayed us on a lot of levels, you know, and then here are these parental figures coming in and then also betraying trust and boundaries. So it was devastating. And there was love there. There was support there. There was belief there. There was transformation there. So you know, I don't like to talk about it in black and white terms. It's complicated. You know, there's gray areas. It does sound a lot like a parental relationship because there are so many layers. It is, that's not black and white either. I'm sure your parents loved you. Exactly. Yes. But there was issues that they were dealing with (laughs) personally. And then the family suffers, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have become a poet if it wasn't for my mother. And, you know, my mother was not a writer. You know, and I, for years and years, I like to blame so much on her, her absence, her alcoholism, blah, 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 blah. And yet she was this amazing orator in many ways. She was an incredible storyteller. She had a way of phrasing and languaging things that was really dynamic and hilarious and smart. And that was the poetry. And, you know, when I was writing my memoir, I was finishing it just around the time that she got diagnosed with stage for cancer and she was gone within two months oh wow that's fast yeah it was this crazy experience i was like all done with this memoir i'm like okay i'm gonna put this to bed and it's gonna be done and then she gets diagnosed with cancer and so i had to rewrite the whole ending of my memoir which was about her and just this incredible positive influence that she had and there was some of that already in there but you know just amplified i devoted the whole last chapter to her wow and her influence was that a healing experience for you? <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. Writing the story to let go of the story, as I like to put it. Yeah. Was that your desire to write a memoir? Did it come from that place? Or was there, I'm sure there's more things, but what would you say? Yeah, you know, I wanted to figure out if I could do it. I've been writing poetry for so long and writing in these sort of lines and musical phrasings and I wasn't sure if I could complete a sentence honestly (laughs) you know I was like how do people do that how do they tell stories you know and go from one idea to the next and sort of evolve a story over time and I love memoirs I love hearing people's stories and so I thought well I'm just gonna try this 
And, and I just kind of felt my story coming up more and more in me and I, having to get it out of my body and onto the page. Like, so there was this visceral kind of need that was gnawing at me. So that's how it came to be. And I, I needed to do it for me first, and then I could decide later whether it would be something for public consumption. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. And I think most of us who create things can relate to that feeling, that urge of needing to do something and a very specific thing. And then yeah. and taking steps towards that and seeing if it changes or, you know, what that process is like. Yeah, because it's harrowing. Like, you know, all my worst character defects and experiences <laughs> and behaviors are kind of laid bare. It's pretty embarrassing, honestly. But you decided to release it, right? You mentioned that we could go get and we could read it. Yes, it's out there in the world. It's also very cathartic. And I realize that many people have made mistakes in this lifetime. I'm not the only one. That's true. <laughs> How did you come to the decision to actually allow it to be? You know, I was inspired by people like Cheryl Strayed, for example, who you know, wrote her incredible memoir about the death of her mom and hitting the trail with no experience as a woman alone in the wilderness. I read her essay in The Sun magazine, I remember, and just being like, what? Like, I was just so blown away by her courage mm. and her honesty. And it really gave me the sense of permission. Her and some other writers, you know, people like Augustine Burroughs, who wrote about their family story with just such kind of raw honesty and kind of laying bare their truth on the page. I just found it so courageous and emotionally moving that I thought, like, I wonder, like, okay, I'm a funny nobody. <laughs> I, maybe I could do this. You know, maybe I can relate to some of the other funny nobodies out there in the world. Right. The permission part, I really understand that. And I think it's such a big deal when we find it, when we can find the permission to do something. Yeah. Well, anything really that we feel the need to do. And often for me, it's myself blocking something and then some kind of permission is given, whether it's just me noticing something or being inspired by someone like you were amalgamation of a lot of things. And then suddenly maybe I can do it, right? Like what would happen? Like what would happen if mm -hmm. I tried? What would happen if I did give myself permission? What would happen if I gave myself permission? Like all of these things can happen yes. when we allow that. And that's the important thing, and I'm glad you said that, is that I give myself permission. So it's not like this external thing like, you know, this patriarchal force over here gives you permission to write your book. No, right. it's like <laughs> cultivating that through inspiration, you know. So when I say that, like Cheryl Strait gave me the permission, it was like an inspired permission and a self-reflective permission. Yeah, really well said. I like the way you said it's an inspired permission, like cultivating that through inspiration. That's really beautiful. I wanted to say it again for anyone that may have missed that. Because <laughs> that is how it happens. That's the formula. So yeah, I, I really like that. You do talk about mindfulness in how you work. How did that become part of what you do? Or why is that important to you? And how does that work in, in the process? Oh, geez, how much time do we have? <laughs> so after I graduated from the Art Institute, I was sort of flailing about trying to figure out what to do for a job and so forth. And I was noodling out about in West Marin. A friend of mine, we were driving past the center called Spirit Rock. I misread the sign. I thought it said Spirit Rock Mediation Center. And my friend was like, no, dope, that's Meditation Center. And I was like... What is meditation? Like, what is that? She's like, well, let's go. They do these Monday night 
things and you can just come and check it out. And this guy, Jack Cornfield speaks about, you know, Buddhism and this path to awakening and blah, blah, blah. And so I went to a, a Monday night, you know, I, around this time, it was like, I was super engaged with poetry and super excited about poetry. And so I go to this Monday night sitting thing and there's Jack Cornfield and he's reading poems and he's talking about poetry in terms of spirituality and about waking up and opening your heart and being self-compassionate and loving kindness. And it was just like, what? <laughs> you know, there's all this like total revelations. And this became like, the second path, you know, the parallel path, because I was just totally enthralled with this notion that I could be still with myself and I could be silent and I could start looking inward and that things would reveal themselves and I could let go of some of this baggage and some of these old stories I had about myself. And so I started going to regular Monday nights and then day longs and then Jack's teacher from Thailand came to visit a guy named Ajahn Jamnian. I got to sit with him for a weekend and he didn't speak any English but he was just this like radiating beaming monk. He was just so full of love and happiness and acceptance and I just felt like for some reason, I just felt like he loved me for no reason. <laughs> and this was like a total revelation, like to be in someone's presence who is just kind of in love with the world and in love with everybody, you know, regardless of their situation. Free of judgments. Yeah, yeah, just free of judgment. And so that began my devotion to the path of mindfulness and meditation. Wow. It's like he was talking to you in that moment. That's amazing. Right. I mean, of course, he's talking to everybody, but... Sure, sure. We're always in different states, lesser or greater states of receptivity. Right. You know, and mm. and I was so kind of raw and open from these journeys, you know, with the psychedelic journeys in particular. And I was just kind of getting emotionally beaten up in therapy, <laughs> you know, and in a good way, but in a very hard way. Yeah. You know, and so... When I went to sit and I finally got silent and quiet, I mean, I just burst into tears, you know, and I was always the guy in the back of the meditation hall, like curled up in the fetus position, like crying for no reason. <laughs> you know? Well, there was reason, but yeah. <laughs> well, there was, right. There was reason, of course. You know, it's just all the trauma yeah. and the grief and the sadness. It was all just starting to release because I finally got quiet enough wow. to let it out. So. I love the power and stillness, the way that you share about it in allowing. Stillness is it. Wow. How old were you when you discovered that? I was just about 20. Let's see, I probably went to my first sitting around 27. Oh, wow. I feel like that's young to kind of come into this awareness of ourselves and our power and understanding the power of stillness. I think that oh, yeah. a lot of us aren't introduced to those things till maybe later or even have the capacity to accept it yet. So that's pretty amazing. Well, yeah, and I came from a family in which we were agnostic at best or, you know, my mother was just outright antagonistic towards religion because she had grown up in this very constrictive and even abusive Catholic upbringing. She had to go to convent when she was young, and the nuns were really mean to her. And my grandfather was super devout, and you know, everything was just like. So she just always was harping on, you know, the Catholic faith in particular. I didn't really know what to think of it. And then my father was just kind of like, if anything, he'd gone to a couple of Quaker meetings. You know? <laughs> but Buddhism, that was like, what is that? You know, this was a whole nother dimension. Right. And I think the biggest revelation for me when I think back on it is that Buddhism wasn't a religion. It's this path 
of awakening and it's totally self-guided there's no like external deity or god that you're sort of projecting all your shit onto (laughs) you know that it's really about you and about you realizing your innate beauty and your innate creative capacities and your innate wisdom but it's all in here and once we like clean up sort of and let go of all the conditioning that we can live and love and be real in the world Mm, that's so beautiful and i feel the freedom in how you share that i can feel that energy of it just feels like a relief almost like oh yeah like I can just I can just be a person. Okay. Totally. <laughs> it's great. Totally. And of course it's a process and a journey, right? That yeah. takes, you know, we're describing sort of that relief happening over a 20-year period. And maybe over and over again too, right? Yes, step by step, moment by moment, breath by breath, word by yeah. word. You know, one of my favorite quotes ever is from Margaret Atwood where she says, "A word after a word after a word is power." Mm. And I think what she's speaking to there is that, you know, you just keep going word by word in the same way that like in mindfulness practice and meditation practice, we go breath by breath. Mm. You don't think about the whole book like, oh, my God, I have to write this 500 page novel. How am I going to do that? No, it's just word after word after word, breath after breath after breath. And next thing you know, you've completed your book. Next thing you know, you're awake. (laughs) <laughs> right. 20 years later or 20 lifetimes later right. or whatever it is. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. I just got kind of chills in that explanation because I resonate with that quite a bit when I discovered that simplicity as a part of my creative practice. It was so mm-hmm. liberating and so comforting. And I have a bunch of other words I could use that continue to describe that. And so I'm kind of making an assumption that this is how you're using it in your creativity. But my question is, is this how it works for you? Is it helping people understand how to be in a process step by step? Or how does it all work? together? Absolutely. Consistency wins every time. (laughs) So what I preach on a daily basis, Yeah. you know, just being with that, you know, the things that I've noticed, the biggest challenges people have are staying the course when it comes to creativity, when it comes to cultivating a spiritual practice, it's hard to stay focused. And especially in this day and age, we've got like a million things coming at us. So it just takes that, you know, just keep it simple, right? Just come back to a word after a word after a word is power. You know, just this breath, just this moment, you and I talking, uttering, vocalizing, there's nothing else happening. It's true. (laughs) There's nothing else to do, right? It's to surrender to the moment. Yeah. We touched on this in another conversation about being in action. And Mm, doing really helps with that ability to focus. And creativity, I think, is a a doing thing where you can do something, whether it's with your hands or with your body, with your mind. Focusing, I think, really helps with that presence in the doing and in the step-by-step. Would you agree? Absolutely. So, and it's this funny thing. It's counterintuitive to do nothing. Doing nothing helps us do something. (laughs) It inspires us. It creates the energy and the spaciousness in which to take action and to finish that essay or that poem or that novel. Yeah. So it's alternating. The stillness and the space and the doing, right? Yeah. 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 How do you help someone who might be in a procrastinating space and deciphering the difference. Do you know what I mean? Between the stillness and the inaction and the action, because that does come up. Oh, yes. Procrastination. I think one has to ask themselves, why? Why am I procrastinating? 
I think that's a good question to ask ourselves. Like, why do I keep opening the refrigerator <laughs> and staring into it? <laughs> or that's one of my favorite things to do when I <laughs> procrastinate. Or, yeah. you know, why am I rearranging my sock drawer? You know, is there fear there? Mm. You know, is there resistance? You know, is procrastination ultimately a, a form of resistance? And it, I think the only way to get clear on that is to be quiet. And to be contemplative and to reflect. Yeah. And whether you do that in silent meditation or whether you do that in contemplative movement or Tai Chi or whatever, those practices are inherently, in my experience, and everyone should check out for themselves, but they do, they open us up to, or they open me up to confronting that resistance, mm. you know, and confronting that fear and then having a little bit more space to work with it and feel like, oh, okay, fear. Hello, fear. Hi. You know, I have a novel to write right now, so I, I don't really have time for you, but I see you. We can talk another time. I'm going to get back to the page here. <laughs> so to kind of be in that dialogue, I think, is a fun way of approaching it. And then you don't push it away, you know, and that doesn't become yet another layer of resistance, but that you're like, oh, okay, there's fear. Hi, fear. Or hi, procrastination. Or hello, comparison mind. Mm -hmm. You're getting in the way right now. I got a poem to write. Like, yeah. We can chat another time. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, that's a wonderful way. I do a personification exercise sometimes with like fear or things like that. And it's, it's the same thing you're doing with having a conversation with the things that are naturally going to come up sometimes. And yes. just knowing like just the awareness that it's going to happen and then working with it and making a decision. I think that alone is so powerful and can help someone move through it. That simple thing just... It sounds simple, but it's not. If you think it's not normal, <laughs> if you think you're not supposed to feel like this, I think a lot of us do think that for a period of time or at some point. Oh, yeah. And then we just go into the berating ourselves, right? Yeah. And it just kind of becomes a cycle. So if we can accept it and just be like, oh, yeah, okay, this is just normal and this is what's happening. And I'm not going to surrender to it because I've made this commitment to my creativity and this dance routine or the song I want to write or this poem I want to create. I like that too. You're making a commitment, like honoring that. Devotion is a huge piece. I wrote a whole chapter on it. Okay. Writing is a path to awakening. Devotion is everything. That's so beautiful. Thank you for talking about that a little bit because I think a lot of us kind of go through those waves and it can get confusing if we're just learning about this way of being in a process. Speaking about all of that, can you talk just a little bit about you know what you're doing now, how you're working with writers and what your specialty is in that space? Well, I'm writing and working on various projects as well, but I'm also, I have a community of writers. We call ourselves the Brilliant Writer Community. We teach, we have weekly classes, we have a coaching program, we do special events with best-selling authors, people like Cheryl Strait and Danny Shapiro and others. Yeah, and yeah, just helping people who want to really dive into this writing journey, help them go from frustration and confusion to clarity and completion. That's our modus operandi. <laughs> That's great. Yes. Love that because it can be a long process at times. So we need that. Sometimes having that space and that container and that support can be everything. Well, and yeah, conscious, compassionate community, I think is really, really important. And we talked about this earlier, but I, I don't think, you know, I'm not able to do it alone. You know, I think the community is, is the ticket for getting towards completion. Mm. Yeah, I'm letting that sink in because... Like you mentioned, it can be sometimes easy to just go try to do something all by yourself and just 
mm-hmm. push through it. And, you know, what if it were easier? What if you had help? What if you had a community? What if you had that compassionate space? How much yeah. nicer and easier might it be? Yeah. And community is not all created equal. You know, as much as I love the Art Institute and being in that community of artists, and it was very brawling and exciting and, you know, intellectually stimulating, it was also competitive. And, you know, people were sort of jockeying for intellectual position, mm. <laughs> you know, and there was a lot of, I don't know, one-upmanship and, and this kind of thing and judgment. And that can really kill creativity. Yes, it can. So one has to choose wisely, I think. Absolutely. And, and if I gained that just through your storytelling today in your life, how many different communities you've participated in and which ones, you know, best served you and which ones may have served you in some way, but maybe not the best way. <laughs> but, yeah, that's right. There have been many fails. <laughs> but it's, I'm happy that you're sharing that because I think it's good for us to see that the journey can really kind of evolve and take different faces and that we have a choice. If there's one thing you want someone to understand about what we talked about today if there's one takeaway, what would you want that to be? Oh, geez, just remember that you, we began with this a little bit. And I think I told you the story when we were talking before, but that our very nature is creativity. We are creative beings. We cannot deny that. And even I have my, our little bracelets that we give out on retreat that says I am a creative genius. And it's just a reminder, right? Like, And don't take this word genius too seriously. You know, I know that's a charged word for many people. But I do, in my experience of working with people for 25 years, you know, kids all the way up through adults and at senior centers, like I see creative brilliance every time that I teach. And it's not because I'm such a great teacher, but it's just because I'm reminding people and giving them space to express their truth. And that's beautiful. That's genius. So I just want to remind people of that. I love that. That's so perfect. Thank you for that. I'm very grateful for that. How can we connect with you? Yes. So the website, albertflindesilver.com. And I'm also on all the social channels. I don't know if it's okay to mention this. We are currently offering free coaching and strategy sessions for people who are writing a book or getting more serious about their writing projects. We'd be happy to talk with you and you can find information about that on the website or just reach out to us through the contact page. Amazing. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Albert, for joining me. I really, really enjoyed our conversation. Me too, Christina. Total delight. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for listening to People Begin. We hope that these episodes are helping inspire and empower you to take your next steps towards whatever you're thinking of creating. And if you want more tools, resources, and techniques for your creative process and to connect with me directly, then I'd love to invite you to our Unleash Creative Community. Just follow the link in the show notes and I'll look forward to meeting you there. Happy creating.